to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Research and Pharmacy Practice. This series focuses on discussions for all things related to research, including fundamentals, best practices, and practical advice for all of those that are interested in contributing to the advancement of pharmacy practice. My name is John Finicos. I'm a pharmacist here at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And today for the episode, we're lucky to be chatting with Jessica Grandoni. She is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute here in Boston. And I'm also joined by my colleague and friend, Charles Pollack a physician with the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. And we'll be discussing barriers and key strategies conducting a medication use evaluation for the anticoagulant reversal agent and Dexanet-alpha. My guests today were part of an advisory panel that led to the creation of a new ASHP Foundation Medication Use Evaluation Resource Guide and it was supported by the company Alexion. And I'll stop here for a minute and just say you can go to the ASHP Foundation website, www.ashpfoundation.org, and you'll find the resource guide there. So first of all, I welcome the audience for joining us today. And then to Jess and Charlie, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to chat a little bit about what I think is incredibly important in our world of pharmacy medication use evaluations. Let me open our program with a couple of questions and just maybe you can help me. We all were involved in this process of creating a tool for medication use evaluations. We focused on the drug Andexanet. We'll talk about that later. But let me open with you and maybe you can chat a little bit about what the importance of conducting a medication use evaluation is or what you think is important in terms of a hospital or acute care facility. Yeah, so for indexinate alpha, it's or any medication for that matter that's associated with high mortality, high morbidity, and unfortunately, commonly high cost. Having an MUE is very important because, right, the Control trials, the pivotal control trial that's strict, right, is not equitable to what we see in the real world. So conducting an MUE for something like this is important for many reasons. As we know, too, the use of indexinet throughout this country is not homogenous, right? We know within the partner's facility, we all don't carry indexinet. So having practice-based research is important to gather all of that data. So by conducting an MUE, you're able to look retrospectively at many data points to see what your use is, right? Not all of us have 24-7 clinical pharmacist coverage. Sometimes the pharmacist that's in the ED is also the same pharmacist that will go into the sterile products room, gown up, and mix the medication. So having these endpoints to look at can really help you evaluate and look at your real time outcomes retrospectively to see, you know, how well are you doing as an institution looking at your policies, your guidelines, and getting the medication to your patient. Dolly, let me turn to you. I know, as I'll tell the audience, Dr. Pollock has been a prolific clinician. He's been a prolific researcher. He's been contributing to numerous studies, including those on anticoagulant reversal. He's a prolific educator. And I think that in the world of pharmacy, he appreciates value and the dollars we spend on 
medications. Charlie, from your perspective, an emergency room doc, you know, what, what's important in terms of looking at medications and what happens with them? Well, I think we recognize now more than ever, John, that we don't have endless resources. Even in the emergency department, where we've been notoriously cost insensitive because our position is we're saving lives, man. We're going to take whatever, use whatever it takes to uh, to make something happen for this patient. We'll worry about how the patient pays for it later. So that's a really quaint notion, but it's something that uh, we're often not allowed to voice anymore. So when you look at drugs that are, as Jess said, sort of high acuity drugs, drugs that you're only going to pull out in a life-threatening situation, there's this interesting intersection of drugs that meet that definition and also drugs that we don't use very often. So reversal agents for anticoagulants fall into that category. If you look at the DOACs with respect to warfarin, the occurrence of life-threatening bleeds, particularly intracranial bleeds, is much lower with the DOACs. And so it's great that we have reversal strategies that we've worked through, but the fact of the matter is no one physician, and for that matter, no one clinical pharmacist supporting the emergency department or the ICU or the operating room or the trauma center is going to have much experience with these drugs. So I think an MUE, although that's not something with which physicians often get directly involved, I think from an institutional standpoint, having the foresight to go through and map out processes of care determine the best ways to achieve efficiency when you need a drug in such an acute situation, and most people aren't really practiced in doing that, I think it's very beneficial. And I think the guide we put together as part of this committee, I think will be very useful in that regard and can probably be applied to other acute care, but rarely used medications. So I, I for me, it helps to compartmentalize what we do in the world of medication use and from an MUE process, we're typically looking at prescribing, we're typically looking at dispensing, we're typically looking at drug administration. We always want to follow up and make sure the drugs do what they're intended to do or if there's side effects or toxicities. And then always under an umbrella of management control and, and budgetary process. So I think, you know, one of the nice parts that you heard from Jessen and Charlie is indexinet falls well into a lot of these different categories. It's you know typically a high risk medication. There's a lot of pressure to get the drug out from the pharmacy and into the hands of the nurses to make sure it's administered correctly. And then we've had uh, obviously success with reversing bleeding, but there are some elements of thrombosis that are associated with its administration as well. So I think it's been an ideal project that you can use as a template for medication use evaluations for many other drugs as well. So again, I'll urge the audience to go to the website. Charlie, let me come back to you for a second. And you've worked at different facilities. For this drug in an MUE, does one size fit all? So is there a difference between academic medical centers, community hospitals, rural referral hospitals, in terms of what the role is with this agent? Well, if you look at the type of patient who might qualify for reversal of anti-factor 10A DOAC uh, anticoagulation, the patients all look pretty much the same. The problem is the setting to which they present with that bleed can vary a lot. And you mentioned some of the different categories we think about in terms of you know tertiary quaternary care centers versus rural hospitals. The fact of the matter is the scarcity of these events, as remarkable as they are when they occur, 
the scarce of these events, because again, the, the drugs that are being reversed are, are generally pretty safe, often dictates that smaller hospitals in particular aren't going to have this agent available. And so they may want to just stabilize the patient and send the patient somewhere else where they can receive definitive management, which would likely include reversal under those circumstances. And I think that, you know, the first thing that a, a hospital considering the use of, of reversal agent has to consider is, are we going to have the capability here? Or are we going to have a plan in place to ship the patient somewhere else if they need to be reversed? And if that's the case, what can we do to temporize and try to stabilize the patient while we're waiting for that to happen? If, in fact, the decision is made that you're going to have Adexanet or other reversal agents on formulary, then, again, I think it's incumbent upon the center to do a lot of advanced planning to have a pathway set up so that everybody knows what their role is, what the appropriate timeframes are. Remember that you know, we're not just talking about acute situations where a patient on on an anticoagulant is having a, a, a life-threatening or at least a very severe bleed. We're also talking about the sense that we have. Uh, granted, the data aren't, aren't quite as robust as I'd like, but I think we all sort of share the sense that the sooner you reverse somebody who has a life-threatening bleed, the better. You know, the sooner you can help the patient achieve hemostasis, the better the patient's going to do. Now, some of these patients are, are not going to do well no matter what, and some of them might, in retrospect, you know, when you do that evaluation, that after-action report, if you will, after the patient is reversed, well, maybe we could have gotten by with just uh, supportive care. But in general, if you've got everybody attuned to what your capabilities are and what these patients look like, you're going to be treating appropriate patients. And because those appropriate patients present so rarely, there has to be some sort of protocol or pathway set. I will tell you also as part of that, and John and Jess, you deal with this more than I do, these patients with life-threatening bleeds while on antithrombotic therapy never seem to present at a convenient time. These things often happen on nights and weekends and holidays. I have no idea why. You know, maybe it's phase of the moon, the calendar. I don't know. But the system has to expect that. And for example, if you've got an approval process for a drug like a reversal agent where the hematologist on call or the neurosurgeon on call, whoever has to approve the use of the drug, realize as you're setting up your protocol, and this should be part of the MUE is looking at all these aspects, realize that ties the hands of the emergency physician who may be making a what he or she considers to be a life or death call right now. So I think, again, regardless of the size of the hospital, regardless of the focus of the hospital, if you're going to have this agent on formulary, you've got to have a user-friendly, round-the-clock accessible pathway and process for utilizing it. Jess, let me turn to you because you've been instrumental in setting up the HAD program, a hemostasis, antithrombiotic stewardship programs, and written about it, done MUEs on this. You want to just give the audience a little bit of a glimpse into how to be successful in this space and tie it to the MUE process? Definitely. So Obviously, anything like this is hard to implement. As Charlie mentioned, it's having a protocol that not just is out there for everybody to use in the middle of the night, but that people know about it, that people know about your service if you are a HAP program or some other sort of consult service, right? You can have all the best things in the world, but if people don't know about it, if you don't advertise well, if you don't give presentations and just be in people's faces about it, they're not going to know about it. So I think, you know, make these great guidelines, implement these great resources with clinical decision support through your electronic health record, but then advertise about it. Do the grand rounds with vascular medicine. Do a quick nursing education in the emergency department. We do a quick pharmacy huddle. Talk about it at the pharmacy huddle, right? Staff turnover occurs all the time. So I think by 
being loud about it, that more people will know it. Not everyone's going to have a pocket guide in their little lab coats anymore. So I think, you know, if you show people the links and where to gather this information, it's important. And then when going back to see if are these things that we implemented good, are we doing a good job, right? We're not going to look at the outcomes of it for causality, but really just see, okay, we made this guideline. Did it make physician order entry quicker for then the pharmacist to review? You know, how long did that take? Okay. They looked at this guideline, they selected the appropriate dose, so that saved time. And then the pharmacist reviewed it, they knew about where to find the guidelines, that saved time in evaluating the order. And then what about drug preparation? You know, Because we know it's a high alert medication, we know that this needs to be mixed immediately as time is brain, that that pharmacist knew the importance of the medication to get it expedited with the sterile products room, so that they made that phone call that saved time in getting the medication and other parameters to look at. How long did it take from mixed preparation, you know, grabbing the vials off the shelf? Was it a kit that was already made? Is this something that we could have done? And then delivery time. Did the tech take a break because they didn't understand the importance of this medication and stopped and got a coffee and then continued to walk to the emergency department? <laughs> We're all addicted to coffee here on the Northeast. So I think telling all of the touch points, you know, how important this is, how can we get this quicker to the patient is a good way to evaluate how well you're doing with those great guidelines and resources you made. So Jess, we typically break MUEs down into measuring process, which you've just talked about. Did we follow our internal guidelines? How long did it take us to prepare a drug and get it to the nurse? How many drugs did we make and throw away? And then, of course, there's outcome measures that, you know, did the bleeding stop? Did the patient have any adverse events? Um, were we able to restart anticoagulation? So in our simulation process that we did, we had a number of process measures and outcome measures. But let me ask you, and, and I'll, then I'll jump to Charlie. You know, what's the difference between doing an MUE and following process or outcomes versus the full-blown randomized control clinical trial? that, you know, most people want to point to. Yeah, so just as you mentioned, and, and Charlie had mentioned too, an MUE is multidisciplinary. It's primarily done by pharmacists because that's what we love to do. And it's usually associated with something, as we mentioned, high mortality and cost. But it's not going to look at outcome. Did this said medication give this outcome for the patient and stop expansion? It's really going to look at your processes, so operationally and therapeutics. Did it stop it? But maybe that's not, you know, powered and detected to do that. But the MUE is helpful in saying of how can you improve your delivery? It's not taking that rigid control trial with the strict endpoints of serial CTs to do to assess for hemostasis or other parameters that are just too hard to collect, right? Like we to go through the monotony of data collection can be unrealistic. Um, so by doing an MUE, it's looking at the microscope of your endpoints that you have available. So for us, you know, we can see the delivery time that's checked in Epic. It's how long it started to process um, preparation, how long it took to get to the bedside. Whereas a randomized control trial is really not going to look at that. They'll look at um, bigger endpoints such as centimeters, which Charlie can talk about, um, hematoma expansion size or volume parameters and such. Whereas that's just unrealistic to do, at least on our side, to look have a neurologist look at a CT and, and retrospectively to say, this was done with this volume by this certain time, and it's attributed to this drug, not the other things that we also did for the patient. Charlie, let me ask, I mean, so we do this legwork here. How does it support or dovetail or not with 
the big clinical trials such as reverse AD that you were involved? The clinical trial is aiming to evaluate whether or not we should do something. In the case of the Indexinet uh, and the adarizumab studies, the reversal studies, there was no control group. So it wasn't a randomization. It was an observational study in a very high intensity environment. But the fact is the patient met certain inclusion criteria and then was treated in a certain way, and then the results were analyzed. With an MUE, there's none of that sort of forward planning. The patient is going to be treated, and it's certainly worthwhile to look back at the presentation and see if retrospectively other members of a review committee or other experts in the hospital agree that the patient should have been treated, but it's always after the fact, so it doesn't matter. And then you look at the different milestones that a multidisciplinary group has set for when that process is set into motion. And so, for example, an MUE might realistically say, you know, between the physician deciding that you're going to reverse and the delivery of the drug to the bedside should be no more than X number of minutes. So you then, you know, look back at the clinical chart and, and reconstruct the process and see, did we meet that or not? If we met it, is it too generous? You know, should should we try to shave five minutes off of this because time is brain if we're talking about an ICH? Or if we didn't meet it, we ask ourselves, you know, was this goal realistic? Or was there something done there that we can identify as maybe a weak link in the chain? I don't like Jess's uh, idea of somebody breaking for coffee, but I, I bet it has happened. <laughs> What can we do to identify where that problem was and make sure it doesn't happen again? So the clinical trial that leads to an indication sets up a scenario in which you're going to use a drug. The MUE then looks at how you use that drug. Was it used appropriately? And did you meet the appropriate standards? And they, you know, these are often internal standards you set within your own institution for how the drug should be dispensed. And an important part of it from my perspective as, as a physician is, and John, you mentioned this, is looking at the, the outcomes. The MUE doesn't stop because the drug was delivered at 39 minutes and the target was 40 minutes. And we all say, oh, that's great. Now, you also want to look at what happened to the patient and say, okay, did successful execution of our pathway actually result in a better clinical outcome for the patient? We did a simulation. Uh, you guys are included. Based on, and I'll, I'll put a plug in for ASHP and medication use evaluations, they do have a published guideline that came out in their journal a little over a year ago. And they advocate this process or framework of focus PDCA. So focus, finding a process to evaluate, organizing people that understand the process, clarifying any pitfalls or complications, understanding why this process of delivery variation, and then choosing a, a project to focus on or a component of that delivery to focus on. The PDCA concept plan do check to act is what it, the Joint Commission has advocated for many years. That is, plan what you're going to look at, collect your data, evaluate your data, or check your data, and then make a change. And then go through the process again to see if that change had some fundamental impact. So that's what we've recommended. And as a template for individuals to use, we weren't, at, uh, we chose Indexinet for the reasons we discussed, uh, pointed to earlier. There are other blood products that we could have included, but our focus really was on those institutions that are using this product and making sure that they're doing it right. 
So let me, Charlie, and focus with you. You're a doctor. I mean, are there some considerations that are important in terms of, you know, looking at a drug like Andexanet or looking at a patient population that's hemorrhaging or perhaps even those that need to have anticoagulation reversed for, for surgery? So, you know, what are the considerations from a physician's perspective? One of the most important lessons in the whole reversal literature, regardless of which agent you're talking about, and of course now we're we're looking at reversal agents for antiplatelets too. So, and antithrombotics associated with bleeding, we're going to have more and more mechanisms for potentially reversing their activity. And I worry sometimes that, and you know, John, I worry a lot about lots of things. So it may not it may not be productive, but but I worry sometimes that because people know we can reverse, they may be a little too quick to go to that. Not everybody with a bleed on a DOAC needs to be reversed. And there are others who, you know, with any evidence of bleed, you need to consider it. So there's got to be something in between where there's rational clinical decision-making in the crucible of a very short period of time. So, for example, I would say, and I'm speaking as an emergency physician who practices and knows these data pretty well, but it's by no means the only opinion that could be offered, is that if you've got a patient with neurologic findings, who's taking a 10A DOAC and has a demonstrable bleed on CT, you're going to have to talk me out of reversing that patient because every minute that passes with impaired hemostasis, that hematoma is going to get incrementally bigger, may only be a CC at a time. You know, when I'm talking about units of blood, like in a trauma patient, but a CC or two here or there may have a, an impact on that patient's long-term neurologic outcome. And so, we're not the first thing we do isn't going to be to reverse. We're going to try to support the patient first to do all the things like controlling blood pressure, maybe try to control intracranial pressure to try to improve that patient's outcome. But it's pretty clear that if we can turn off the anticoagulation, the patient's got a better chance of stopping bleeding sooner. If, on the other hand, the patient has, uh, let's say the patient has frequent falls and has a chronic subdural and now has a little bit of a bleed, you know, a little bit of white rim on the CT scan inside that chronic subdural. So technically speaking, that's an acute intracranial hemorrhage, not intracerebral, but intracranial. That's a patient you want to look at and say, okay, what's the, what's the downside of this? You know, this patient is on anticoagulation, probably for AFib. Maybe he's got a valve. I mean, who knows what, what he's on. But what's the trade-off here? If I'm going to give a drug that immediately takes the patient's anticoagulant protection away, What's the downside of that? If I can nurse that patient through this acute bleed without reversing, then in the long haul, that's probably better. So, you know, a patient uh, who comes in with a, uh, after a motor vehicle accident has a splenic laceration and is on rivaroxaban or apixaban and has a couple of units of blood in their belly already. That's a patient you might think, well, you know, maybe I need to take the DOAC effect away so we can achieve hemostasis faster. But if the surgeon says, you know, give him another couple liters of fluid and let me go in and see if I can just patch that up real quick. If the patient's not in shock, it may be better to leave him on a little bit of anticoagulation, keep him from having a post-op stroke or a post-op DVT. These are obviously sort of extreme examples, but it's the kind of thinking you have to do to say, okay, there are lots of things I can do for a patient who's bleeding on an antithrombotic. Think of reversal as being like the ultimate weapon, the, the nuclear option. And there are some patients for whom it's clear that you need to exercise the nuclear option. There are others where if you think, okay, I can support this patient. GI bleed's a perfect example. This patient's bleeding pretty briskly, but on the other hand, I can support him with a bunch of fluids. I can give him some uh, PPI. Maybe I can give him some you know, vasoactive agent and get him to the endoscopy suite and they can buzz something and I never have to reverse it. It's a little scary 
because you know that the patient's own body is working against you because the patient has an iatrogenic coagulopathy. But again, you got to think big picture. And let's say that patient that I just described with the GI bleed had a, a big PE a month ago or has AFib and a chance to vascular of six. That's a patient for whom, you know, taking them off anticoagulation, even for a little while, is fraught with hazard itself. And so there has to be this sort of balancing act done between the acute bleed and the risk of, of thrombosis when you discontinue the antithrombotic therapy. So that's another reason why I think having a pathway, multiple decision makers, and then always having that sort of after-action review, going back and looking at outcomes and how decisions were made, is really important because you don't see these situations all that commonly. And so we want to try to have as consistent an approach as we can within the institution. And just let me ask you to capitalize on that final comment. You shepherd through the process in your role and stewardship. I mean, where are the variations and where are the potential improvement options here? So for the pharmacy audience, where do we focus our attention and efforts? Yeah, and I think Charlie talked about a lot of points, and it's clear, obviously, that right, you're right there at the bedside. You know all these things. You're clearly an expert in the field. But a lot of these pharmacists aren't always experts in the field and they don't know the data or the ways to think about a patient the way that Charlie, myself or John would think about, you know, did they recently have a clot? You know, what type of bleed is this? Can we support them through? So I think the first step to support your, the pharmacy colleagues in doing an MUE is with the guidelines but also provide education about them. So at least there's some background about them and they can kind of interpret them, but with a narrative, right? Or with a script, it's not just handing them a piece of paper. But once you have those guidelines, um, link them to other things to help evaluate. Or if you're doing a topic discussion with your pharmacy students and residents, teach them about where did this data come from? We didn't just pull it from, you know, Wikipedia. We pulled it from other analyses and case reports, other MUEs, other control trials, so that a background is established and understood. Additionally, when thinking about your MUE and how to evaluate these patients, how can we as pharmacists make an impact, right? So having, you know, it always happens at the wrong time overnight. I call the wrong time at 3 p.m. when we have change of shift. So how do you establish good pass-off, good rapport within colleagues? You know, if you're at the bedside 3 p.m. and a bleed comes through the ED, that there's pharmacy interventions, there's thorough documentation of all of the um, discussions that were had with all of your consult providers, the ER physician, the neurology teams, you know, maybe the patient was stable and we could just support through and then they decompensated um, and then they had to go to surgery and sorts. You know, what was the discussion that was already had? So the pharmacist taking over is not all of a sudden starting at you know, ground zero again to try to figure out what's going on next. And I think all of these points when you're conducting an MUE, although you may not say, was there documentation by a pharmacist, or maybe you do have that checkbox, but that all goes into time and how long it took to make a decision, regardless of what the decision is to say, you know, we did supportive care check, we gave PCC check, or we decided to go to surgery with or without one of these agents. I think those would all be helpful on the pharmacy end. So Jess, let me stick with you for a moment. We did this simulation. We had a whole bunch of people. You can look at the resource guide and see the flow chart that was created, the potential pitfalls. Can you give the audience quickly some tips and key strategies or takeaways that the MUE process may help folks with? Yeah, I think an MUE process for any medication is very helpful, right? As we've all mentioned, it's not prospective. It's looking back after the fact. So it can maybe make outcomes better in the future, but think of ways 
to expedite data collection? Are things, can things be automated? Can you pull things from Epic? I know that we've done a couple reports that kind of gives you your, your patient cohorts or your data that makes it very easy. Data collection is very labor intensive. So if there's anything that you can define in your data collection sheet or in your spreadsheet tab that is easily automated, do that. So that way you're not manually checking through all of, all of the patient data yourself. As we mentioned before, an MUE has a focus question, whether it's therapeutics or processes. Have one or two focus questions that you and your stakeholders all want to look at and try not to get too out of hand. I know everybody wants to answer all of the questions because you don't want to go back into a patient's chart because who wants to go back and do more data collection? But I think if you really stay focused, remember your one or two um, questions at hand, it will make your MUE stronger so that maybe you can improve your variances or gaps in what you're doing within your institution. Charlie, let me ask you a slightly different question. Obviously, there's controversy surrounding the agent you should use, the strategy. You've written a million guidelines. How can the MUE process resolve some of those controversies, confrontations, and guideline discrepancies? Right now, we've got uh, guidelines that are pretty straightforward about prioritizing the reversal options when they're needed. And I think the guidelines do a decent job of identifying those situations where reversal is needed. We only have one agent right now, at least for the 10 A's, that is FDA approved. So to some extent, that can help sort of set the stage for how an institution should prepare for these sorts of, of cases. But the other thing that I think an MUE can do and the protocol that results from it and then is tested by it is to take those elements of controversy that you just mentioned, John, out of the care of the patient at the bedside. Again, I can't stress enough, a patient on an anti-10A DOAC that the physician thinks might need to be reversed is by definition a life-threatening situation. And so having to have a debate at that point about the relative merits of different strategies is, is not good. The one thing that you might pause and think about is, you know, does this patient really need reversal or is supportive therapy alone going to be enough? If the weight of the clinical decision-making in real time comes down in favor of reversal, again, it's unlikely. I mean, let's face it, it's unlikely that the physician and the pharmacist working on that patient right then has done this before. Or if, if they've done it before, it may have been, you know, two years ago. Having a process that is monitored by the MUE so that the next time this happens, we'll have lessons learned from it, I think is, is really critical and really helpful. And I think it's, it's an exercise that uh, every institution that has a reversal agent on its formulary should probably go through. Okay. I want to go off the board for a second. And if to the audience, if you haven't done so before or already, I'll encourage you to go to the ASHP Foundation's website you can download the Medication Use Evaluation Resource Guide, but there are lots of other excellent resources available, both through ASHP and the Foundation. So I'd urge you to use those resources whenever possible. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd love to hear more from you. And I hope you subscribe to the different podcasts that are available, the different webinars that are available through ASHP. So. I'd like to wrap up because that's uh, really all the time we have for today. So I want to thank, obviously, Dr. Jessica Grandoni. Jess, you've led the pharmacy in this hemostasis, antithrombotic stewardship programs around the country and around the world. So I thank you for joining us. Dr. Charles Pollock, Charlie, as always, you've been incredibly supportive of the world of pharmacy and our efforts. And I thank you for joining us today. I hope 
that all of you take into consideration you know, what you need at your individual institution. You conduct a medication use evaluation and certainly focus on drugs like Ampaximab. I think this, uh, as you heard today, they play an important role in what we do for patient management. So I'll close and again, thank the ASHP Foundation. I'll thank our sponsors. I'll thank Jess and Charlie. Uh, I'll thank our organizers. Enjoy the day. I hope you enjoyed the program. Stay safe, folks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. Thank you.